Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. It's the start of a brand new week on Political Rewind. Uh, Monday, May 10th, I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us today. As most of you know, uh, we just finished up uh, a pledge drive, our uh, semi-annual pledge drive, the spring drive, last uh, Friday. And very quickly, I just want to say thank you to all of you who either continued your support for GPB Radio and, and for Political Rewind, or those of you who became new contributors, um, Amelia Brock, Sam Burmas Dawes, Jesse Neiswanger, and I, our team on Political Rewind, are grateful to you. Um, and, and not just for your financial support, but for the really lovely messages you've sent saying how much the show means to you. So thank you very much. Uh, we're now free of pledge drives until the fall and uh, back to uh, almost an hour of conversation with our panels. Uh, let's get right to it. We have an awful lot to talk about, and we may be jumping around a bit today, but that's okay. This is a panel that can handle anything we want to discuss. Jim Galloway, is uh, with us. He is on every Monday show, a former political uh, columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, longtime reporter at the AJC, and uh, we're really glad to have you with us. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing great. Had a had a wonderful Mother's Day weekend, or at least I tried to, prov- let's say I tried to provide a wonderful Mother's Day weekend. I'm sure that Judy was very grateful for everything you did for her with your two daughters. Um, Alan Abramowitz is with us, professor of political science at Emory University. Alan, thank you. We're really glad to have you back with us. It's great to be back on. Um, You are joined as well uh, by your fellow political science professor, Karen Owen, professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. Karen, you told us before the show, you had a lovely Mother's Day yesterday. I did. I did. My children were just very lovely to me, so I I appreciated our day together. Well, good for you. And we're very happy that Tia Mitchell, the Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us. Uh, Tia, no shortage of news stories for you to cover up there as you watch the Georgia delegation and, and uh, larger politics unfolding in Washington these days. Yes, I think it's going to be an interesting week, um, but I say that just about every week. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I I want to start with um, a a bill signing that uh, took place, excuse me, uh, the other day. Uh, Governor Kemp, Jim, signed the bill that would uh, prevent local governments from uh, reducing police budgets in their communities by 5% or more. And it's been a controversial measure from the start. But, but one of the reasons I want to talk about it is I want to read the statement that Governor Kemp uh, made when he signed the bill. Quote, radical movements like the defund the police movement seek to vilify the men and women who leave their families every day and put their lives on the line to protect all Georgians. Uh, this far-left movement will endanger our communities and our law enforcement officers and leave our most vulnerable at 
risk. And, and Jim, I think this is worth talking about for several reasons. I mean, number one, it's another example of uh, Republicans who've always said they support local control over all else, deciding they'd better step in to prevent local communities from taking this kind of action. Uh, but it's also a uh, very strong uh, a statement, I think, giving us a sense of where Republicans are headed in terms of the combat, the, the, the really fierce combat they intend to uh, engage in as we move toward the 2022 election cycle. Uh, yeah, there's uh, this. This is kind of operating at at a, at a number of levels. First of all, in in if if you look at the photo of of the signing ceremony on on at at, at uh, Governor Kemp's right hand was uh, uh, State Representative uh, Houston Gaines, who is very likely to be running for uh, 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 for uh, Jody Heiss's uh, vacated congressional seat in 2022. So so there's that. But uh, it uh, and then the other part of this is is that uh, really since his since his uh, since his brouhaha with 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 President Trump over over the November third election, uh, Kemp has Kemp has really gone hard at law enforcement and 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 crime. Uh, uh, specifically in in the, in the city of Atlanta, uh, he, he's formed a, a new kind of a, a crime fighting squad uh, late last week. Uh, he is uh, it, it, it's it, it's it's almost as if he's trying to he, he's thinking of joining the the Atlanta mayoral race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Alan, I thought about you when I read that statement and. And other statements, especially the last week or so, made by many Republicans, both here and in Washington, back as long ago as 2016, I looked up your what I think is your first article about the rise of negative partisanship and the nationalization of U.S. elections in the 21st century. And it was back then that you proposed that negative partisanship was going to be the driving force behind elections. And uh, that's certainly uh, been something that we've seen come true in the years since, Alan. Absolutely. I mean, I think we clearly saw that in the 2020 presidential election. Uh, We saw it in the runoff elections here in Georgia. And I think we're going to see it again in the 2022 midterm elections. Um, This, I think, is is all about trying to, uh, first of all, ingratiate himself on the governor camp trying to ingratiate himself to the Trump base um, and because he's worried uh, about the attacks that Trump has made uh, on him. Uh, and it's also ultimately, I think, about trying to drive up turnout. Uh, and, and I think what we're going to see in 2022 is what we saw in 2020 and in the runoff elections, which is another election that's going to be all about turnout and with, with very, very little uh, actual persuasion going on. Uh, Tia, it is certainly true that uh, last summer uh, there were uh, uh, left-leaning organizations that started using the term defund the police. A lot of them quickly withdrew from that language, recognizing that it was very charged and having potentially uh, negative impacts on how they were able to position themselves. Um, But it's it's a phrase that obviously Republicans have been thrilled to seize upon and in this case, this bill really seems to be a response, uh, this law now, to nothing more than uh, conversations first in the city of Athens and then in the city of Atlanta about reducing police budgets. Right. 
and it's it's based on sensationalizing um, an idea. So the idea is that you take money for law enforcement and you can you hear me? Yes, and we can. That you, okay, that you take money for law enforcement and you move it for other things that could address the same issues, but in a non-policing way. And when you put it like that, it doesn't sound so scary. But when you say defund the police, um, people equate it to getting rid of policing altogether. And that's an even more leftist idea that is even less embraced. I'm not saying nobody has said there are some progressives out there who say, look at police departments, look at their abysmal clearance rates, look at crime skyrocketing. Do we really need them? But that is even less prominent than defund the police, which is more prominent, but not very prominent at all in Georgia. And it's even misunderstood when it is discussed. Um, and I think there's a problem, you know, on the left, they say it's a problem because their messaging is being misconstrued. But on the right, I think there's some bad faith um, discussion about what's really the goal and what's really the intent. Karen? So I would uh, chime in here to say that if you're of a certain age, you would have known that former speaker or speaker Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. And I think in 2021, all politics is no longer local. It is really nationalized. And, you know, this is not Governor Kemp's first attempt at really getting involved in local politics. I mean, during the pandemic, he was using those emergency powers to really, you know, handle the crisis of the pandemic. And then he also got in a confrontation with Atlanta's mayor over the mask mandates and different things. So I think we're seeing a governor who is involved more in trying to talk about local issues and bringing that national piece or that statewide piece into those areas. And I also think, you know, for the parties, we are going to see that they are going to be driving the messages and local and state politicians are going to be picking on that because that's what voters are paying attention to. I think with the lack of local news coverage in so many of our states and communities, voters are hearing just the national soundbite. They're not hearing their local beats. And so that's what some of our politicians are really working hard on and messaging toward. Um, yeah, uh, Bill, a couple things. Uh, number one, first of all, the bill is 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 primarily symbolic. There is no enforcement mechanism. And there are enough loopholes in this thing to drive a truck, several trucks through. Mm -hmm. Uh, in in terms of in terms of you know if the city has a, has a, has a, a sharp decline in revenue you know all bets are off and such, uh, but there's one very very interesting por portion of this bill that's not getting any discussion. The bill allows for uh, officers and firefighters firefighters to ask for deductions to have to for personal for for professional insurance coverage. That is a task that in, in most groups usually applies to unions. Mm -hmm. So, so, so I, 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 I kind of find that very interesting that, uh, that uh, the governor maybe, maybe, maybe may have just signed a bill supporting that. So, so Alan, Jim just sort of reinforced a point that you made about um, the, the fact that um, the, this bill this now about to become law is really uh, 
It's symbolic more than anything else. It is an effort to drive the base out to the polls, but it also can energize Democrats in a large way as well. I mean, don't Republicans have to be careful that uh, they're going to raise anger among Democrats who will want to go to the polls as well now? Well, I think that's right. And I, I think that's um, particularly true if you look at uh, the, uh, the voting bill uh, that was also signed into law recently by the governor. Uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of pushback uh, against that on, on the part of Democratic leaders and elected officials and progressive groups. And so uh, I think this just illustrates once again the adage that it's very difficult to energize your party's base without also energizing the opposing party's base. Uh, and, and that's really what we've been seeing in recent elections. So I, I think what we're likely to see in 2022 is that um, despite these efforts to impose restrictions on voting, um, that we're likely to see a very strong voter turnout. Uh, and I think in part that will be driven by uh, both organ- organized efforts to uh, to turn out uh, uh, groups that are targeted by this by this voting bill, uh, but also just by uh, feelings on the part of voters that if someone's trying to stop me from voting uh, or doesn't want me to vote, then I'm just going to redouble my efforts to make sure that I cast my ballot. So, uh, Karen and Tia, uh, on our show Friday, Patricia Murphy talked about a column that she had <clears throat> written that appeared in the Sunday. Uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and she came up with a phrase that I thought was really interesting. She said that Republicans right now, as we prepare for 2022, have moved from engagement to enragement. And, and, and Karen, it does seem, and, and please correct me if you think I am either oversimplifying or distorting the truth about this, Democrats continue to propose actual policies that they would like to institute, whereas Republicans, uh, more than ever before, have uh, tropes that they are trying to, in which they are trying to define Democrats negatively, and and that has become really the dominant themes that that they take on. I think, you know, that phrase by Patricia is outstanding in the context of where we're living right now, because I don't think the Republican Party nationally is talking policies or really talking an anti-Biden administration plan. They're not really going after specific components of what Biden is doing or his administration is doing, and they are just reacting. I think part of that is just the Republicans still are within the party trying to decide, are we still going to continue to be loyal to the Trump and continue to drive that base and talk to that base? Or are we going to try to move away, which is where we're at nationally this week, where it's going to be, can we handle a Liz Cheney in leadership or is it time for her to go? And we're going to still be talking to the Trump base. I think they're just still struggling with that. And when you have national Republican leaders, even like former President George W. Bush, talking about the party in a certain way and how to speak to on like the immigration issue, other leaders in the party aren't listening to that. They're not sure what to do. And I think that's reactionary and not a pro stance on policies or trying to engage back again in the policy world. And I think so what Tia, Repub- that, go ahead, I was going to say, I think what Republicans have learned through the age of Donald Trump 
is at least among their base, which is their most loyal voters, which most Republicans need in order to win a primary. And we know most Republicans are in districts where the primary pretty much settles it. So because Trump has told them that you win a primary by inflammatory rhetoric that gets people fired up and ready to go, if you've ever attended or watched a Trump rally on TV, you saw it with your own eyes. That's how he, you know, that's how he operated when he was connecting to voters, speaking directly to voters. He spoke to their insecurities their worries in a way that was pretty inflammatory, that um, described Democrats as um, out to get them and disrupt their way of life and characterized certain um, segments of people as, you know, antithetical to what is a general Republican, you know, get it, make America great again way of life. And that is the blueprint that now other Republicans are following. But part of the reason why they're following a blueprint is, for the most part, it has worked. Now, what Liz Cheney and others are saying is, if you look at the most recent national elections, if you look at Georgia, there are limitations. And that is kind of the the fault line with Republicans is too many of them have seen it work locally and with their primaries that they're kind of not ready to wrestle with the part that Liz Cheney is bringing. And she even said that. She said, you guys are ignoring Donald Trump's unfavorable ratings. You're ignoring the elephant in the room that there are limitations to the Trump blueprint. And, Alan, that brings us to what's going to be the big national political story this week. On Wednesday, the uh, House Republican Conference is going to vote on uh, whether to remove Liz Cheney from her position and in the conference, third uh, leading position in the conference, and in, replace her with Elise Stefanik <clears throat> yesterday on Fox News. Once again, to talk about re- rhetoric, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, uh, explicitly endorsed Elise Stefanik for the job and and said, well, this isn't about Donald Trump. This isn't because Liz Cheney is attacking Donald Trump's uh, assertions that the election was a fraud. This is because we just have to have a united front if we hope to win back seats in the House and take the majority in 2022. But I think we all uh, see through that pretty clearly, Republicans, Democrats, and even journalists like us on, some of us on the panel today, Alan. There is no doubt what this is all about. Um, we were talking earlier about this uh, um, internal struggle over the direction of the Republican Party. Uh, and, and I think what we can say at this point is that that battle is over. Um, and and that at, le- at least for the time being, uh, that um, the the, the Trump Trump's allies uh, are are have prevailed, uh, and, and this is going to be the party of Trump uh, at, le- at least for the next year or two until until the midterm elections, uh, and we're we're going to see uh, a Liz Cheney removed. There's there's very little doubt about that. Um, she's going to be replaced by Elise Stefanik, who ironically has a much more moderate voting record. Uh, and has been was much less supportive of the Trump agenda uh, uh, when Trump was in the White House than Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney was you know, voted with Trump uh, the overwhelming majority of the time, but um, she's refused to go along with Trump's big lie about the 2020 election, and that's what matters here. 
Uh, and you know, McCarthy has determined uh, that that to keep the party unified uh, going into the midterm elections, that the, the, the only way that, that that can happen is by remaining loyal to Trump. And, uh, the, and so that's what's going to happen. And we'll see how that plays out in, in the midterm elections. So, um, you know, it's going to be fascinating, Jim, and, and then Karen, I'd love to get you too on this, um, to watch what happens. I mean, we, we assume, although this is the secret vote, we assume that Cheney will be voted out on Wednesday. But it'll be fascinating to see. She's a, a, it said over and over again that she intends to continue pushing her point of view and trying to rally Republicans who are uh, feel similarly to her to begin a new force within movement within the party. And we're going to watch the same thing with Jeff Duncan, who has consistently uh, said he that Trump is wrong about fraud. He's charted his own course. He talks about GOP 2.0. It's going to be fascinating to watch what people like Duncan and Liz Cheney are able to do as they swim upstream against the uh, Donald Trump tide. Right. I, I, and, and I will tell you what, um, uh, the 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 parallel to to the the Cheney uh, situation in D.C. Uh, might be might be the U.S. Senate race in Georgia that's coming up uh, uh, next year. You've got you've got state Republicans really paralyzed because Donald Trump has been pushing Herschel Walker, uh, and you've got a number of you've got a number of of prominent Republicans who are ready to jump in. Uh, to to challenge uh, Warnock for that for that six year term, but they can't move until uh, until this uh, this partnership between uh, Walker and Trump is resolved. If it is, if if if, if Herschel goes in, if 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 Trump uh, Trump has his way, then uh, uh, he'll be the nominee, and I think that bodes ill for for uh, for uh, Republicans on many fronts. Galloway, I could have scripted. Those remarks of yours, because you are leading us into exactly what I'd love to talk about when we come back from our break. Where does Herschel Walker stand in terms of running in the U.S. Senate race next year? And does he have any chance at all? We'll discuss that more with our panel after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with Tia Mitchell, Alan Abramowitz, Karen Owen, and Jim Galloway on this Monday edition of Political Rewind. Karen, I, I meant to get you into the conversation right before the break, so I'd like to turn to you as we start this second segment of the show. Donald Trump uh, continues to push Herschel Walker as the guy who ought to face Raphael Warnock next year. And um, of, of less, you know, last week when McCarthy and Lindsey, Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham came to uh, Atlanta for big GOP fundraising dinner, um, McCarthy got a lot of attention because he attacked Major League Baseball over pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta. Of lesser note was the fact that Lindsey Graham told the Republicans at the dinner, 
Uh, you wonder about Herschel Walker? Stay tuned. There will be news suggesting that perhaps there may be a Herschel Walker candidacy in the future. Erin? So I think that an announcement needs to come pretty soon, right? The field of Republican candidates need to know if he's in or out. So interesting thing about Herschel Walker, and I'm going to admit right now, I'm a Georgia grad, so I love some <laughs> running backs from the 1980 team, right? But I think it's an interesting dynamic in the fact that Herschel Walker has great name identification. He obviously was supportive of President Trump and has all that. But he's also never run for office. He hasn't been living in Georgia. And for any candidate running, especially statewide and for a high-profile position like the U.S. Senate, you have to have your why. Why are you running? What are you going to do? And I don't know if Herschel has that started conversation with himself about why he wants to run and be a United States senator from Georgia, but he's going to have to have that piece. Um, and I think it's going to be difficult given our state. Not everyone living in metro Atlanta or Georgia loves UGA and the dogs. And I hate to admit that, but there's going to be some people who just don't, they're not going to gravitate to that. That is not going to appeal to them at this time. And so I think there's a lot going into this decision making, but he has to announce soon. People need to know, right? Okay, I I, I want to disclose, I'm a Chicago boy. I grew up with Big Ten football, so Herschel Walker, I didn't even know much about him until I moved down here many, many years ago. But my wife is a University of Georgia graduate. She was there when Herschel was a big star. So we've got a balance in our family. Alan, weigh in. Well, I, I think if Herschel decides to run, what he'll quickly discover is that uh, celebrity status, uh, e e even uh, being... Uh, you know, widely regarded as the best player in the history of Georgia football, which is saying something, uh, doesn't necessarily translate into political support. Um, people don't base their choices on their feelings about Georgia football. That, that's just not going to happen. The other thing to keep in mind about Herschel Walker is that there's a lot of personal baggage there. But on top of that, um, he has been one of the most ardent supporters of President Trump uh, you can think of, and, 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 he, and he has fully bought into uh, Trump's lie about the election. And, and so if he runs, I, I think that there's a great risk that um, the positions that he's taking and his, his, his all-out support for President Trump will continue to antagonize and alienate a lot of the moderate suburban voters that Republicans really need to win back in, in order to uh, maintain their grip on, on, on the Georgia electorate. The, 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 the fact that they lost a good number of those voters in 2020 is, is why they lost the presidential election here and why they lost the Senate seats here. And nominating someone who is uh, a Trump loyalist would, would risk uh, a continuation of that, and and the state continues to change. You know, the the demographics are not shifting uh, in a favorable direction for Republicans, and they they need to uh, you know adjust to this changing reality. And I just want to say, I just think Herschel Walker's he has not not only is he not like uh, announced he will run, he hasn't really done anything. Solid to indicate he's going to run 
other than appearing uh, pretty infrequently on conservative cable, um, which is not what people who receive former, not what Republicans who receive former President Trump's endorsement, anyone else would have jumped on it and rode the wave immediately. So I think, I'm not saying he won't run, but I'm saying even that tells us something. Think about, you know, Jody Heiss didn't wait around after Donald Trump endorsed him. He's everywhere. He can possibly be, again, talking to the base. And we're just not seeing that from Herschel Walker. And that's indicative of kind of, you know, that he may not be ready for this. He may not really be focused on this. Uh, As we've said, he may not really have a why he's going to do this if he does at all. Hey, Jim, we can make this much more concrete uh, based on something you wrote and set out to all of us last night in the sense that you compared a Herschel Walker run to what we all witnessed when Kelly Leffler, who also came from out of business uh, or it, it had no background in politics and decided to run. And I think you made an excellent point about, and, and Alan uh, uh, referred to this as well, about what it means to suddenly be a new candidate, especially in a high-profile race like United States Senate. Yeah, in a, in a, in a, and, and, and come under this uh, just just this laser of scrutiny. Uh, first thing, number one, is, is, is in 2008, uh, Herschel... Uh, uh, published a, an autobiographical book on his mental health stru- uh, struggles, uh, and said he was he was he had been diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder, uh, which mm-hmm. we used to call multiple personalities uh, uh, mm-hmm. disorder. Uh, look, in 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 a in a mental health is one of those. Uh, it, it, it's just a. It makes you. Struggles there make you very vulnerable. I can't see him getting through a Republican primary without that being mentioned. And then there's yeah, but you're right. There's the fact that that he bought into the Trump line after November third. Uh, he was uh, he he was he was very supportive of uh, of uh, of uh, Sidney Powell's uh, efforts uh, to overthrow the uh, overthrow the election in, in court uh, on January sixth. While the riot was occurring in the U.S. Capitol, he put out two tweets. Number one, saying, in, inferring that the, 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 the rioters were not mega people uh, and Donald Trump needs to find out who they really are. And, mm-hmm. and then alleging that, uh, that it, was a, it was a distraction. Uh, it was an intended, uh, fomented distraction uh, away from, uh, from claims of uh, what he considers very real claims of, of election fraud. So, you know, that's a twofer. That's a general—that will come back to bite him in any general election. You will have Raphael Warnock uh, running against a guy who, who, who was in favor of, uh, of overthrowing uh, the November 3rd election. And that's the same vulnerability that David Perdue and Leffler now, now, now would be confronted with if they decided to get back into, into the ring. So, Karen and then Alan, there's also this issue about what it means to be a first-time candidate, just in terms of your performance as a candidate. And we watched as Kelly Leffler uh, struggled to find her footing as a public speaker, as someone who could participate in an an energetic, uh, authentic way in the debates that she participated in. You know, people who think that running for office— is just taking another step into a new job, 
are missing a big point here, I think, Karen. Absolutely. I mean, that's why each party does a, a better job now than they maybe used to, but they spend time recruiting. They spend time working with candidates and training them. Um, that's why you see with usually higher profile positions, uh, people who have held lower level or, or lower level positions and then work their way up because they gain that experience. And I think, you know, we saw with Lesler too being in the Senate, you get pulled by different consultants. This is, a you know, people who are telling you one thing on one side and then others who think you should message this way. And it becomes difficult if you are not grounded and know the game well you know, how to speak on different issues, how to debate, how to handle social media, um, all these different pieces that when you are or have held office before, you know when you're running for a more um, higher position. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is that whoever ends up as a Republican nominee is going to be going up against an incumbent, Raphael Warnock. Uh, and uh, Raphael Warnock, who is already accumulating a, a very large campaign war chest um, and, and who will be ready uh, for the race and who, according to the most recent uh, AJC poll, uh, in, enjoys a pretty positive uh, overall favorability rating among Georgia voters, actually more positive than I think just about any of the other uh, prominent uh, state political leaders who were uh, asked about in, in that poll. So he's going to be a tough opponent, and Republicans had better come up with a top-tier candidate uh, who will be able to raise a lot of money very quickly if they're going to hope to, uh, to run a competitive race against Raphael Warnock. Yeah. yeah, and I just think in general what's going to be interesting about 2022 in Georgia is this cycle Democrats already have some big candidates in some of those down ballot races that are going to help energize uh, members of their party, people who normally vote Democratic. You know, you've got B. Wynn running for Secretary of State, and she would be the first Asian American um, elected to, you know, that office, only the second Asian American elected statewide. You've got Matthew Wilson, who wants to be the first LGBT person elected, the first out LGBT person elected in Georgia statewide. Of course, you've got Raphael Warnock, and quite frankly, you're probably going to have Stacey Abrams on the ticket. That's a powerful ticket to canvas the state. Um, and we've already talked about Democrats being fired up about the election law, fired up about, you know, um, Donald Trump possibly coming to their state and, and saying whatever he says. And, you know, I think if Republicans aren't unified, that's the other thing. They're not unified right now. They're against Raffensperger. Brian Kemp mm -hmm. might not even be on the ballot. You know, so that's it's just going to be a really interesting cycle with Democrats so fired up and so so unified where they are right now. That could change in a year, but that's what it looks like right now. I think one of the points Tia makes is really important, Jim. We, you know, we know how hard Democrats have struggled over the last two decades, really, to put uh, good, solid candidates in down ballot races. She named some of them. She and, and we should also add Jen Jordan running for attorney general, who's been uh, become a star in the Democratic Party. 
Uh, so that's an interesting point. I'm interested in Tia's comment that maybe Brian Kemp won't be on the ballot. I, I'm not quite, I suspect he's going to run for re-election, right? <laughs> Uh, this is the, yeah, yeah. I, I would disagree with Tia on that. I think, I think, I think he's his 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 fortunes have had a a, a turn for the better in the in the last five months. Uh, but but, oh, but here, Tia, it, you're you're suggesting that he could lose a primary to a strong opponent. I'm yeah, sorry, it, I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, that's what the I was trying to say. Is- in the yeah, general that, election, Brian sense. Kemp may not be on yeah. the ballot. Right, right. But okay. I, I have, okay. I have a, I have a question for for Alan here, and 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 I've been reading about, uh, and this applies to what what kind of uh, reinforces what Tia was saying. Uh, I, I I have been reading some material that says, uh, that that Joe Biden's victory in many states, possibly including Georgia, was 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 driven by down ballot activity. That that has become more and more important uh, uh, to 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 statewide victories. That is, that if you have, it's not the top that drives the bottom; it's the bottom that drives the top. Yeah, I'm skeptical about that. <laughs> I, I would say this: <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, uh, what what we saw it was very it's very important for Democrats and Republicans alike to have candidates running across the board. Uh, uh, to have candidates. And that's kind of what we've seen in recent years. We were seeing fewer of these contests in which the party simply, uh, uh, one party wins by pure default, uh, where, where there's no, no candidate nominated at all. Um, but I, I'm skeptical, of the claim, skeptical about the claim that down-ballot candidates are driving the turnout. Uh, I, think, I think it's still the case that the, in a presidential election year, especially that the presidential race is really what's driving things and we saw a tremendous connection between the presidential result and the down ballot results in 2020, where, you know, the, almost every uh, state and district that was won by Biden was won by a Democrat down ballot. Same thing on the other side. And I think what we're going to see in 2022 is that it's going to be Stacey Abrams, assuming that she runs for governor, and we have no reason to think she's not going to run for governor, that, that you know, the turnout will be driven by the governor's race, uh, and the outcomes down ballot will be very, very closely related to the outcome of the governor's race, just just as as was true in uh, in 2018. Hey, Karen, before we get to a break, and we'll certainly have a lot of time in the weeks and months ahead to follow the, the thread of the conversation we've been having so far today, but I want to turn to another story, Karen, that you, as a professor in the University System of Georgia, have something of an interest in. Um at last Friday, the search firm that had been hired, the executive search firm to identify candidates for chancellor, uh, dropped out. They said, we're resigning uh, this uh, uh, task, and at the time gave no reason for doing it. Since then, the woman who heads the firm said, well, there's been a lot of, quote, misinformation, unquote, that's emerging about this search. Uh, she didn't elaborate on that, but we certainly know there's been enormous controversy about uh, indications that perhaps Sonny Perdue is being prepped to step up into that position. Students at the University of Georgia have started a, a campaign to say we don't want Sonny Perdue in there. It, here's another situation in which, I mean, politics has already always played a role to some extent in the Board of Regents and the Chancellor's job. But it's become really mired in politics right now. 
you're correct. And this definitely affects where I sit because I'm in the university system because the chancellor's position is very important, overseeing the 26 universities in the state and, you know, working with the Board of Regents, obviously, and then setting many different things. I think it's disheartening how political this is right now and the front page, right? It just kind of feeds in to everything else that's happening nationally and statewide. Um, you're right. There are students who are definitely upset about the idea of hearing that um, former Governor Purdue might just be tapped. I think there are faculty that have concerns about what it is, considering that Governor Purdue um, doesn't have higher education experience, right? It does seem very political. I would be interested to see if there will be a new firm brought in, how this kind of continues, where the governor will weigh in, if he wants to weigh in, or if he's just going to kind of let the board and others like a firm continue through a process. All right. That's going to be a fascinating story to watch play out, too. we got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, we still have a lot more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, there's been a reaction all over the board to Keisha Lance Bottoms' surprise announcement at the end of last week. She wouldn't seek re-election. On one hand, she's been getting sympathy from any number of people who have said, oh, my gosh, why wouldn't you want to give up this job, given what she's been through for the last couple of years trying to uh, uh, run the city of Atlanta? Others have said, well, thank goodness she's not running. She's never been a very good mayor to begin with. The response has been really fascinating to watch unfold, Jim. Yeah, and it 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 speaks to uh, kind of Atlanta's situation in terms of uh, divisive politics, uh, not necessarily Republican versus uh, Democrat, although there is some of that uh, uh, given uh, given Buckhead's influence there. Uh, but the, the 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 breakdown is racial too, uh, and and uh, I think uh, this this. Uh, I think Mayor Bottoms found herself collateral damage uh, in uh, in in the in the George Floyd protests. I think I think that really has 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 uh, has has kind of uh, uh, brought her brought brought her to a crisis, if you will, a personal crisis. Uh, it, it what's interesting is that you know even uh, uh i know on friday y'all were talking about that 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 very interesting video that she put out with it uh with with her announcement that it was that that kind of almost was a, a was a, it was a, almost a campaign video but not quite uh but in that video i i don't know if if you noticed but she took a pretty uh sharp attack on on governor brian kemp uh for 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 his uh, his role in 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 uh, criti- criticizing her about uh, about her handling of the protests in in criticizing or her handling handling of her criticism of his handling of the pandemic, it, you know I don't think Keisha Lance Bottoms is 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 built for for just hardcore contentious politics. Uh, she's she's more of the conciliatory. She is. She has a more conciliatory nature, and I. I really think that's what that's that's what uh, brought her to that decision. All right. So I. I. I want to talk about. We've. We are hearing all sorts of names uh, for people who might want to jump into the race. Uh, so far, we know there are two candidates in Felicia Moore, uh, president of the Atlanta City Council, Sharon Gay, long history of service to uh, the city in a variety of roles. Now an attorney at Denton's. Um, 
But uh, let me ask each of you to go. Let's go around. Alan, I'll start with you. To what extent now? Uh, you, you know, Sam Missell is the last mayor who of Atlanta, and that was when, Jim, in the 60s? To, no, uh, 73. Uh, 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 to uh, lose yeah, 70, yeah, exactly. 70 something. Mm-hmm. To lose reelection. And Alan, he lost to Maynard Jackson, the first African American mm-hmm. mayor in mm-hmm. Atlanta. So, it, it big, in a big city. So, the question becomes how important is racial politics to this day in electing the next mayor of Atlanta? Well, I'm sure it's still very important. Um, uh, but it's not, it's not the only thing that matters in this case because. Uh, I mean, clearly, you're, you're going to see a large field of candidates. You're going to see uh, African-American candidates. You're going to see some white candidates, I assume. And the outcome will be a runoff. And, and th- there will be a runoff, in a, uh, and, and the outcome of that runoff and the Democratic runoff will determine uh, who, who uh, of that runoff will determine who, who is going to be the next mayor. And uh, so there's going to be all, all sorts of cross-cutting uh, issues here. You know, you're talking the relationship between the, the the mayor and the governor. You know, used to be traditionally it was a, it was a pretty cooperative uh, relationship most of the time, um, and it's, but it, it, it's turned very contentious in recent years. And you know, which is sort of consistent with everything else that we've seen going on in, in, in politics. But I think it also reflected the the impact uh, of of the pandemic, uh, as as well as the the uh, the increase in 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 violent crime. Uh, that was sort of also in, may, may have been a byproduct of the pandemic as well. And we're seeing this across the country. This isn't unique to Atlanta. Uh, we're seeing the same thing happen in, in, in many other major cities around the United States. So uh, what I would say to whoever is taking this job is be careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, Tia, let me let me throw something to you. So uh, Alan just said it. Kasim Reed as mayor, Nathan Deal as governor, were very proud of the partnership that they struck, a Republican and a Democrat, for the good of the city and the state. But Alan's right. I mean, under Keisha Lance Bottoms and Brian Kemp, that relationship completely collapsed. Yeah, and I think the one of the biggest differences is Brian Kemp is a much different governor than Nathan Deal. You know, Brian Kemp is, came in much more conservative and came in, you know, kind of still on that wave of Republicans really speaking to their base in ways that don't transition as well to bipartisanship. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to have a, a bipartisan discussion about crime in the inner city when you campaigned with a rifle in your campaign, you know, commercial you know that shows the the difference in very stark ways um and it, it, i'm not saying they couldn't have done it but clearly mayor bottoms and governor kemp were never really able to bridge that gap in a long-term way they came together here and there but in long-term ways they weren't able to bridge the gap i just want to say one thing quickly is that I do think racial politics is going to play, play a big part because racial politics play a big part already in city of Atlanta politics, not just Buckhead versus the city, but you've got to talk about gentrification. You've got to talk about housing affordability. All these things, the race is the fault line. And so these are all going to be major themes in the mayoral race. I would definitely say she's correct. Like there's going to be the racial discussions and it's going to fall. 
I think the candidates who enter are going to have to offer solutions that uh, can, you know, kind of bridge. I like to rephrase, like, make a bridge, even if it's not to the executive of the state, but to the city, helping the city come back together. I think if you look at some of the candidates that are mentioned, I think a lot of those kind of um, Mary Norwoods, Jason Carters, those may wait to see what Kasim Reed decides just to know if this is really your shot to go in because as the, as the race gets more crowded, then your likelihood becomes much more difficult to try to mount that campaign, raise money, and go. So I think another person that will be interesting to see is if Mary Norwood and Kathy Willard do jump back in to the mayoral race. Both of them had a really good shot. Um, you know, Norwood went into the runoff and lost by just like 800 votes. So what I think this is her now, uh, bottom's announcement is a shakeup to many. Where do we go and how do we talk about the issues in the city? Yeah, the, the, the one thing I would add to this is that, and what's, what's in the context here, the background behind uh, all, all this you know, is the changing demographics of the city of Atlanta uh, mm -hmm. that we can't lose sight of. Uh, the city of Atlanta is no longer a majority African-American city. Um, it is, you know, it is a very, very diverse city in which you have uh, not only a large African-American population, but you have a, l a large white population, you have a large Asian-American population, you have a large Latino population. And, and I think the successful candidate is likely to be one who can bridge the racial divide, who can, who can put together a coalition that is, that is multiracial. Um, and, but that, that, is, that is always tricky, of course, because there are, there are very different concerns among some of the members of these different, different communities. Jim? Yeah, it, it's it's and and you can see you can already see it in the in the the number of candidates who are announced and the number of candidates who have who who have uh, kind of let their name be used. Uh, of course, you got Felicia Moore, council president, who's running, and she was, she kind of broke the ice uh, uh, mm -hmm. in in terms of 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 uh, letting letting Bottoms know that this would be a, a contested race. You have Sharon Gay, as you mentioned. Uh, one of the more interesting names that I've that that, that we've seen mentioned is is Jason Carter. Uh, you know, the former state senator and former Democratic gubernatorial candidate. Well, one way or the other, um, as we're running out of time for today's show, uh, somebody's going to have to jump in pretty fast. I mean, you've only you've got six months until the election. So, for instance, if Kasim Rejim plans to get into this race, um, we know he can raise money. Uh, he was uh, many people would say very successful as mayor. The business community was, for the most part, pretty happy with him. But so, somebody, if there's going to be another candidate, Jim, they're going to get to jump in there. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, oh absolutely. Look, this is this is. Uh, you have to remember, Atlanta elections are odd year elections. Uh, this is this is the yeah. first the first vote is going to be be, be uh, uh, in November, uh, right? I, I think yeah. they may, uh, once was in October and they've moved it to, to November. So that so that there there's no time there. Maybe Kasim gets it gets in. I'm still doubtful. Yeah, we're going to watch that. I understand exactly what you're saying. We'll have plenty of time to talk more about this, but not today. Jim Galloway, Karen Owen, Ellen Abramowitz, Tia Mitchell. This is another one of those days when I feel so lucky to get to ask you all questions and hear your analysis of what's happening in politics here and uh, nationally. So thank you all so much for being with us. Thank you out there for listening to us today. We're back with another brand new show 
Uh, tomorrow, Sam Olins and Michael Thurman will be back with us tomorrow. They're always fun to have on the show, along with uh, Tamar Hallerman, of course. And um, so join us then. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask above your nose. And as I've been saying, I know you've probably already gotten a vaccine. Would you please tell your neighbor down the street they really should do it as well. Thanks for being with us. See you all tomorrow.